Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you curious what the black stains on your boards are caused by? Do you want to know the finer points of building an overlay drawer? Would you like to start working with more hand tools, but you have a limited budget? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everybody, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques for April 26, 2017. I have what I think will be a great show for you today. Later in the show, I'll be talking about starting out with hand tools on a limited budget. And this could be for someone completely new to the craft with no tools whatsoever or for someone who's been woodworking primarily with machines who wants to incorporate more handwork into their routine. A very common question that I get asked and something that I talk about in my hand tools seminars. Uh, so we're going to go into detail on it later in today's show. But first, I want to thank everyone for the feedback that you all provided after my first show two weeks ago. Uh, the feedback's been nothing but positive, and I'm really humbled by the kind words and the support that everyone's shown for the show. Uh, really speaks highly for the woodworking community as a whole and just makes me really proud to be part of it. So thank you all. I don't have a lot to share from the shop this week. We're actually out of town for almost a week after the last show, visiting family for the Easter holiday, so haven't been in the shop much since the last show. I have been working on a small project for a new class I'll be teaching this summer. It's a reproduction of a 19th century sliding lid candle box. It should be a pretty simple project, but because it incorporates everything that typical drawer construction does, it's a great piece for learning the basics of making traditional dovetail drawers without having to build a, a case or a table to put the drawer in. I should have some more information on that project and the class on the blog in the next couple of weeks. For those of you who have been following the progress of the new log cabin on the blog or in the newsletter, we've also made a little bit of progress there. Uh, my wife and I were actually able to dig in the floor drain in the basement and get all the gravel and the vapor barrier laid in preparation for pouring the concrete, so that was pretty exciting. And then uh, my brother-in-law helped me install one of the large double windows in the second floor of the house. So we plan on doing two, but it turns out that the guys who put the logs in didn't cut the openings in the log wall quite wide enough for the window unit to fit. So we had to spend quite a bit of time with the handsaw trying to widen the rough opening in eight inch thick log wall before we could actually frame the window bucks and install the window. But needless to say, we got one of them done and at least for the other one, I went out and got a, a 12 inch blade for my reciprocating saw and hopefully make the job of widening that second opening a little easier. But trials and tribulations of building one's own house, I suppose. I did get one new Patreon supporter this week, so I want to thank Bill Warnock for going over to Patreon and signing up to support the show. Got some feedback on the last show from Jonathan Jongsma. Uh, he says, great show, just one minor technical suggestion. The volume level seemed a bit low. I usually listen while working in my basement shop and had to turn it all the way up, and it was still sometimes a bit hard to hear over the dehumidifier in the other room and various shop noises. So thanks for that feedback, Jonathan. I did make some minor changes to the inputs this week for uh, for this week's show, so hopefully I have improved on the volume, and uh, you know we'll 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 get this worked out as we as we move along. And if anyone else has any 
uh, feedback on that after this show. If it sounds better to you this week, uh, you know, let me know. Uh, we'll get these uh, bugs out worked out eventually. So that's it for feedback for this week. Let's get right into the mailbox. So our first question comes from Scott and Scott says, I'm starting to do more dovetail joinery in one area. I'm having difficulty figuring out is how to cut a dovetail and still compensate for the groove to accept the drawer bottom. I'm hoping that you might help clear this up for me. So this is one of the, the things that's sometimes difficult to get the grasp of when you're first getting started with dovetail joinery because it, if you think about it um, and, you, and you try to draw it out, you know you, you could end up with the groove sticking out the side um, if you don't arrange things properly. So I like to, when I make drawers, I like to use period methods. Um, you know, I think they're, they're the fastest way to make a drawer. Um, and I also think they're the most elegant. So what I typically will do is to size my, uh, my stock for my drawer. And if I can, I'll size that stock all one long piece. So sometimes that's possible. Sometimes it's not, but if it, if it is, it makes it easier to plow the groove. So if you can plow your groove all through one long piece, it, it helps to make that groove line up. A lot of times it's not possible because you're using a different wood for the drawer front than you are possibly for the sides and back. A lot of times, especially when we look at um, antique construction, they actually used a secondary wood for the uh, drawer sides and back so the you know the drawer front might be walnut or mahogany or something like that and then the drawer sides and back might be pine or poplar or or, or oak or some kind of secondary wood so you're not always going to have one long piece that you're going to apply your groove through but nonetheless start by sizing your drawer front um, and get that to fit the the opening and I'm, I'm talking about a, a an inset drawer here so um Get that drawer front size to your opening. Then go ahead and plow your groove on the bottom for your drawer, for, for the bottom of the drawer. That groove is typically going to be about a quarter inch wide groove. And I like to space it up about a quarter to three eighths of an inch from the bottom of the drawer. That, so, um, so that there's a gap, um, some solid wood at the bottom, and then you have your, your quarter inch groove. Now, once you have the drawer front with the groove plowed in it, you can go ahead and size your drawer sides. And you're going to do the same thing, size them for length, size them for uh, the width of the drawer side, and then go ahead and plow that groove for the drawer bottom. And again, you're going to use the same setting on the plow plane. Don't move the fence so that the, the groove on the sides will line up with the groove in the front. Once you have the grooves plowed, then you can start to lay out your dovetails. And the trick here is to bury that groove in the half blind dovetail in the drawer front. So in other words, you want to lay out your dovetails so that the groove on the drawer front is falling within the pin um, or, or, the, or the tail socket, right? So when you put the drawer sides into the drawer front, the sides of that drawer the dovetails on the sides of the drawer are going to cover up the groove. And because it's a half blind dovetail, the groove isn't going to show on the sides of the drawer. Now, when you get to the back, things are done a little bit differently. So for the back of the drawer, there is no groove. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to size your drawer back 
so that the width of the drawback only comes to the top of the groove. So the drawback is actually going to be shorter than the sides in the front. Now the reason for this is that we're going to cut through dovetails when we, where we join the back to the sides. By cutting through dovetails, the process goes a lot faster. By sizing the drawback so that it sits above the groove, it leaves the groove exposed on the sides, the drawer sides, at the back of the drawer. What this allows us to do is to then slide the drawer bottom in from the back of the drawer, and it fits in the groove in the sides and in the drawer front. And then you just pin the drawer bottom at the back of the drawer with a, you know, with a nail or a screw in the center of the drawer. This allows the bottom to expand and contract, right? Because the, ideally what you want to do is run your grain in your drawer bottom side to side in the drawer so that all the expansion and contraction of the drawer bottom can happen at the back of the drawer. Um, so that way you're allowing for wood movement. The drawer bottom can just slide right in um, and you don't have to worry about any grooves being exposed anywhere except at the very back of the drawer where you're never going to see them. So Scott, I hope that answers your question. And it actually leads us well into our next question, which comes from Bill S. And Bill actually wants to know how I would approach an overlay drawer front with a fingernail molding profile and half blind dovetails. Specifically, what molding plane would you use and what would be the sequence you would use in building it? I've been trying to wrap my brain around the correct steps and tools to use and I'm having difficulty. So an overlay drawer or half overlay drawer um, would be a little bit more appropriate um, is what the type of drawer that you would typically see in a lot of period construction from like the Queen Anne and Chippendale periods where the drawer front actually covers up the gap. You don't see, it's not a full inset drawer in other words. So there's a part of the drawer that actually sits proud of the face frame on the front of the case. These drawers usually had some kind of thumbnail molding that was planed around the four sides of the drawer just to dress it up and protect that edge um, so it wasn't so sharp and kind of soften it a little bit. Um, and they are done a little bit differently. Since it's an overlay drawer, we do have to size the drawer a little differently. So in an inlaid drawer, a full inset drawer, you're sizing the drawer front to the opening that the drawer is going to go into. Well, when you want that overlay, you need to add the width of the overlay to each side. Now, you're only going to add the width of that overlay to the two sides of the drawer and the top of the drawer. Typically, the bottom of the drawer does not have an overlay. The overlay is only on the two sides and the top. So let's say you know, you, you've got your measurement for what your drawer front, what the opening is. And let's say you want a quarter inch overlay. So you're going to add a half inch to the length, which is going to give you quarter inch overlay on either side. And you're also going to add a quarter inch to the width. And that's going to give you the overlay at the top. Again, you're not going to overlay the bottom at all. Now, the first thing that I would do once I have the drawer front sized is to plane a rabbit on three sides. So I'm going to start by scoring the rabbit across the, uh, the cross grain rabbit on each end. And I'm going to plane that rabbit first, those two rabbits on, on the ends first, quarter inch 
by whatever depth they need to be. So if you've got a three quarter inch drawer front, you probably want to plane that rabbit about a half inch deep by a quarter inch wide. And that's going to be the overlay on either side. On the top of the drawer, again, you're going to plane that rabbit about a half inch deep by a quarter inch wide. Again, that's just going to be on the top. And I would plane that rabbit third because the long grain rabbit will help clean up any tear out or um, spelching that you get when you're planing the cross grain rabbits. Now, once you have those two rabbits plain, you can go ahead and start laying out for your dovetails. Now, I skipped the whole part about sizing the drawer sides because I talked about that in the last question, but we're going to assume you've already got the sides of your drawers side, uh, sized for length and for width. You can go ahead and cut the tails on the sides, and then you're going to transfer those tails to the front where you're going to cut the pins. Once the tails are transferred, you can go ahead and saw out those half blind pins on the drawer front. Remember, they're going to be inside a rabbit, so you're not going to be able to saw quite as much. Now, because of that, what you will often see on period drawers is they actually oversaw the baseline. Because if you don't oversaw the baseline, your saw is not really going to get to do much cutting um, because of that rabbit really blocking uh, the path of the saw. So a lot of period drawers, they actually overcut the tails on the drawer front because it just allows the saw to get in there and, and do a little bit more of the work. You don't have to do that, of course, um, but it just means you're going to do a little bit more chisel work. So you can then chisel out your pins and fit your sides to your drawer front so the groove should line up. Um, oh, and, and, you know, I don't think we talked about planing the groove. Once your rabbits are done, you can go ahead and plane your groove on the bottom of the drawer front and the drawer sides, just like we did for the, the previous question. So you've got the groove planed in the drawer front, you've got the groove planed in the drawer sides, cut your tails in the sides of the drawer, transfer those to the drawer front, cut the pins in the drawer front, and fit your drawer together. Once everything dry fits up well, then you can go ahead and plane your molding. Once you're sure the dry fit of the drawer is good and, and everything works, works well, um, I, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't even plane the molding on the front of the drawer until the drawers were fully assembled or because it, well, yeah, probably not until the drawers were fully assembled because you, you know, usually you're going to, there's going to be some fitting of the drawer after the case is assembled, after the drawer is assembled, there's some fitting that you're going to be doing to get the drawer to fit the opening perfectly. And, and that fitting usually requires putting the drawer in and out a couple times and maybe planing the sides of the drawer a few times. And you don't want to bang up that molding profile on the front of the drawer. So um, I would say do all your drawer fitting before you plane that molding. Then once your drawer fits, you can go ahead and plane that molding on the front of the drawer as the last step. And to do that, I would just plane a very shallow rabbit on all four sides of the drawer front. Again, that would be, um, it would be on, it would, I would do the end grain first, plane the ends, the cross grain rabbits first, and then plane the long grain rabbits. And that rabbit's only going to be, you know, a 32nd to a 16th of an inch deep. It's a very shallow rabbit because it's just for a fillet, just for a small step for that molding. And then you can take a hollow plane or you can take a shoulder plane or whatever you've got and create that round over for that fingernail molding. And that would be done on all four sides. Um, so that's about it. I mean, I think it's a, it's actually a pretty simple step. Um, the, the real trick to that overlay drawer 
again, is just getting that drawer front sized. And once you have the drawer front sized, it's really not a whole lot different than doing an inset drawer. So the next question comes from John. John says, can you discuss how different woods react with each other or with your tools? I've noticed that sometimes I get black staining on some of the projects and I'm not sure where it's coming from. So John, typically when we see black staining on boards that we're working with, it usually is a result of some type of contamination in the wood. More times than not, it's some kind of metal, um, something that's, that's iron containing. What usually happens is that the tannins or the tannic acid in the wood reacts with that iron and it causes black stains um, as the, the tannic acid you know, oxidizes the iron in the metal. Um, and that's usually where that black or bluish black staining comes from. And it's going to be more prevalent in woods that have a higher tannic acid content. All woods have some amount of tannic acid, but um, there are more, some woods have that have more tannic acid than others. And, and that black staining is going to be much more prevalent in those woods. You do mention woods that react with each other. And I, I'm not sure that I've actually ever seen two woods react with each other to change the color. What I have seen are situations where someone might use a dark wood and a light wood as complementary pieces, you know, as complementary woods in, in a piece. And when you do the sanding, the dark wood, sometimes the dust from that dark wood will actually uh, get stuck in the pores of the light wood and essentially color that wood. It, it works like a pigment stain, essentially where the dark sawdust from the dark wood gets trapped in the pores of the light wood. Um, and it really to prevent that, um, I would say try and do the majority of your planing or uh, sanding before those, those pieces are assembled together so that you're not doing it all at once. It's usually not so much of an issue if you're planing your pieces, but if you are sanding, it's very common if you, you know, you have something like walnut and maple together or purple heart, I think is a, is a, a common one where that happens and you'll get the dust from the sanding of the dark wood and it, it gets embedded into the pores of the light wood. And that's where that coloring usually comes from. But I don't think it's an actual reaction. I've never actually heard of different woods reacting with each other. It doesn't mean it's a, that it can't happen. Um, I've just never heard of it happening. But in terms of most of the color that you see, usually it's some kind of metal, whether there was a nail in there or whether you've got some, you know, sharpening, some filings from when you were sharpening or sharpening a saw or something. And that metal comes in contact with the wood and it reacts with the tannic acid. That's usually where those dark stains come from. There is one more type of staining that I'm familiar with. This is often seen in pine and also in maple. Um, and it's actually caused by a fungus. Um, it shows up usually as blue staining in pine, um, and, and it's actually often called blue stain. Um, and it shows up in other woods that's, you know, often referred to as spalting. And you'll see that it'll change the color. Spalting usually actually looks, you know, can look pretty good. It really just, it changes the color of the wood, um, usually makes it a lot darker. Um, blue staining in pine usually doesn't look so good. Um, but both of them are caused by a fungus that gets into the wood and actually starts to decompose or eat the wood. So um, that is one other example that I have seen where some type of reaction happens that changes the color of the wood.
So our last question this week comes from Mark Jones. Mark says, you've covered a lot of basic and not so basic joinery in your old blog and podcast. Can you expand on the basics and discuss how and why these basic joints may need to be modified in certain contexts? For example, how and when to use double or twin mortise and tenons, how to modify dovetails to hide other joinery such as rabbits or grooves, etc. So, Mark, this is a, it's a good question, and it's, it's one of those questions that could make several podcasts in itself because there are so many ways that we can actually modify joinery. So what I'm going to do is just talk about a, a couple that I've done and discuss where you might use them. Um, I Again, I'm not going to be able to cover everything because there are just so many different ways you can modify joinery from, you know, making rabbits and dados stopped stopped joints instead of through joints and things like that. So, and those are pretty basic, but I'm going to cover, um, two or three different types. So the first is, is with mortise and tenons. And there's two ways that I will typically modify mortise and tenons. The first is to do multiples of a mortise and tenon. So what do I mean by multiples? Um, what I mean is that you would have, uh, several mortise and tenon joints in a row. And this is something that will typically be done on a wide case side. Um, let's say something like a dressing table, or if you're going to do a breadboard end, you would typically do multiple mortise and tenons. And the reason for this is, is to allow for wood movement and also so that you're not taking away too much strength in the mortise part. So I'll use a dressing table as an example. So you might have a side of a case that is, you know, 12 to 15 inches wide. Well, if you were just to cut a 12 to 15 inch wide tenon on that case side and put that into the leg of the dressing table, you would need to remove an awful lot of material to make that 12 or 15 inch wide mortise. And that could really weaken the leg of that table. So instead of making a 12 to 15 inch wide mortise, what we'll do is break that mortise and tenon up into maybe three or four mortise and tenons, usually about three. And each one of those tenons would be, say, three inches wide. And then between those tenons, you'll have a little stub tenon that's only, you know, maybe a quarter or a half inch long, whereas the, the primary tenons are, you know, an inch and a quarter or inch and a half long um, so that they we get the most glue surface and the most amount of wood in that joint. So this allows for wood movement if you make the tenons, the mortises just a little bit wider top to bottom than the tenons, and that will allow for some wood movement. But it also makes sure that your leg isn't too weak because you're chopping three shorter mortises in the leg instead of one really long mortise. And then those tenons or the mortises are connected by these tiny short little uh, mortises that are only about a quarter or three eighths of an inch deep or so. And those are just to help to keep the, the case side stiff and, and flat and keep it from twisting or, or bowing or cupping in the joint. So that's one way we might modify the mortise and tenon joint by making multiples instead of a, a single. Another way that you might uh, modify a mortise and tenon might be in a case, let's say, where you're going to make a drawer. Um, so let's say you're building a table 
and you want to put a drawer in that table. Well, instead of a normal apron that you would have in the front, since you're going to put a drawer in, you would put a small piece on the top, right? So maybe that piece might be three quarters of an inch thick. And that would typically be dovetailed into the tops of the legs with a dovetail. And then you're going to put a small stretcher underneath the drawer. And that would be mortise and tendon into the legs. Well, because that stretcher is usually only about three quarters of an inch thick, the, the mortise and the tenon would be very small. And usually what we're looking at in, in those cases, you may have this three quarter or this one inch thick um, board that's going underneath to, to create the drawer bottom or the bottom of the drawer opening, not the bottom of the drawer itself. But that piece might be an inch and a half deep because it's usually about the same size as the leg of the table. Well, instead of having a three quarter inch tall by one and a half inch deep mortise in that leg again you're you're really going to weaken the leg so instead what we can do is we can make twin tenons so because that piece is an inch and a half deep we might make two tenons that are say only three-eighths of an inch right so you've got two two tenons on the board that are not next to each other but instead they're one behind the other and in that case, you're going to maintain a mortise that is longer than it is thick. And you're going to have two tenons. So in your leg, you're going to actually have two tenons next to each other. Um, and that way, when you put that short little stretcher in there that goes at the bottom of the drawer opening, you'll have two tenons and it'll give you more glue surface. And it also will keep you from uh, we removing too much wood from the leg and weakening that leg. And then the other place that we will commonly see modifications to joinery, um, you'll commonly see it in dovetails. So sometimes when you make a through dovetail, you know, maybe you're looking at a case and you don't want to see the straight lines in the dovetail. Maybe you want to see a miter at the corner where the dovetails meet instead of, um, instead of a, a straight joint. Well, that's one way you can modify your dovetails is by making that corner joint a miter there. Um, just at the corner, you don't have to miter the entire dovetail. You you could, of course, which is a, a much more complex joint. But you could also just cut regular through dovetails and miter that corner that's going to show, and it looks like a miter joint from the front. Another way that dovetails are sometimes modified is to hide a groove. So let's say, you know, in many cases, we'll, we'll cut half-blind dovetails to hide a groove, like a drawer bottom or something like that. Um, sorry, not a drawer bottom, a drawer front. We might cut half-blind dovetails at the front of the drawer so that we can hide the groove where the, the drawer bottom fits in. We talked about that in uh, earlier questions. Well, what if you were building some kind of a box, right, and you, you didn't want um, half-blind dovetails. You really wanted through dovetails on all four corners. Well, one way to get that look is to modify the bottom tail where the groove is going through. So instead of cutting a full thickness tail at the bottom, you actually modify that tail to be half of the, the normal thickness. So essentially where the groove comes through that tail, you pare away that material. So that bottom tail is only the thickness to the bottom of the groove. So there is no groove in that bottom tail, right? 
So then you have to also modify that mating pin so that that pin is only half as deep as the other pins. Now, when you look at this joint from the tail side, it looks normal and you see, you know, all through, through tails and it, it actually looks like a regular through dovetail joint. You do see a difference when you look at the joint on the pin side, because what you'll notice is that normally where you would see the ends of the tails, when you're looking at it from the pin side, you would see these rectangles. Well, what you're going to notice is that the bottom rectangle is only half as thick as the other ones. Um, but that's really the only way um, to get a through dovetail to hide a groove. Um, otherwise, you would have to do some type of other other modification to the dovetail, whether it was a half-blind dovetail or a miter dovetail or a hidden dovetail or something like that um, in order to be able to hide that rabbit or that groove. Um, so that's another option. So that, that'll give you a couple of ideas or, or some cases where we might modify some some of the basic joinery. There's a lot more than that. Um, and like I said, I could really do a whole show, um, you know, just on that. And it, it really, it's a topic that's probably better for video than it is for audio, um, just to be able to demonstrate some of those techniques. But I hope that gives you at least some idea of some of the time where we, we might modify a joint. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, just go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and either fill out the form or you can send an email to the address listed on that page. And then you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. I didn't have any voicemails this week, so if anyone wants to leave a voicemail, please do, and I'll go ahead and play that on the show. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. Well, did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website, and in return they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget, go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is hand tools on a budget. It's one of those questions that comes up quite frequently and Anytime you get a bunch of woodworkers together in a room, either literally or figuratively, and you start talking about tools, you're bound to get a lot of very strong opinions about this topic. At one extreme, you've got the old tool purists who, you know, they just deplore anything made after World War II and will damn you to hell for considering any steel other than the cast steel of an old tool. Then at the other extreme are the techno junkies who will swear up and down that nothing performs as well as the latest and greatest and 
anyone who considers a uh, an old tool is it's just a complete waste of time when you can buy new and just work wood. And both extremes will defend their position to the grave, and both sides will have some valid arguments. But I think religiously preaching either side of the debate really does a, a disservice to anyone new to woodworking with hand tools. I like to try and keep some kind of middle ground, and, and that's what I want to talk about today. You know, you, you can usually, you can really get by with a very small budget, but doing so is really going to require a fair bit of time and effort spent on restoring old tools. And if that's what you want to do, you know, that's absolutely fine. But I don't really want to focus on that today. I want to focus on the woodworking. So instead of talking bare minimum budget, what I want to do today is give you some tips for getting into hand tools on a reasonable budget that will keep the focus on working wood and not become becoming a tool collector. So what I have today is I've put together 10 tips um, that will will help you go down this path and, and keep you focused on working wood. So my first tip for you today is to pick a project. You know, this is something that I tell my students in my intro to hand tools classes all the time because so often they come in and the focus is on tools. What tools do I need? And to me, that's the worst thing that you can do because I can't tell you what tools you need unless I know what you're building. Um, if you're going to build chairs, you're going to need a completely different set of tools than you are if you're going to build case furniture. You know, there's a there's a lot of differences depending on what you want to build. So my advice is pick your project first. Once you know your project, you're going to break that project down into a set of tasks. And then you can let those tasks tell you what tools you need. For example, if you're going to build a, a, a case piece, let's say, you're going to, you're going to build a, a table. Well, you need to break down that lumber somehow, right? So if you've got a table saw or a circular saw already, well, maybe you don't need anything. Maybe you can use those tools. If you want to do it by hand, do you have a handsaw that's large enough and with coarse enough teeth for breaking down that lumber, that large, those large pieces of lumber into smaller pieces of lumber? If not, you go out and you get those saws, you tune them up, or if you're buying them new, you just, you know, make sure they're sharp and you go ahead and you, you start that project. And as you get to each task of the project, you figure out if you have the tools you need to do that next task. If you don't, then you go ahead and you get yourself another tool. But what this does, it allows you to really focus on the woodworking and not focus on filling out a tool list um, because so many of these these tool lists um, try to be extremely comprehensive and in essence what you end up with is a whole bunch of tools that you're not going to use all the time and you may not use on the project that you picked at all so pick the project and let that project dictate what you're going to buy and as you you know build a few projects by the end of building two or three or four projects your toolkit will probably be pretty well filled out, but you don't necessarily need every single tool to build that first project. So pick the project first and then figure out what tools you need to build that project. Tip number two is to take a class. This is a great way to get your feet wet in hand tool woodworking because a lot of the schools that offer classes in hand tools 
we'll have some loaner tools for you to use you know if you don't have all of your own and the benefit of that is that those loaner tools are typically going to be already tuned and already sharpened so you're going to pick those tools up and you're going to know what a well-tuned sharp tool is supposed to feel like and that's a good thing because then when you go back to your shop and you want to you know you need to buy tools to fill out your kit or for the project that you're building you'll know what that tool is supposed to feel like and you can you know go back to your shop and say hey you know well i've got this hand plane but it doesn't seem like it's working quite as well as the one that i used in the class so well what's wrong but if you hadn't taken that class yet before and hadn't had that experience with tools that were sharp and were well tuned you wouldn't be able to diagnose that problem and you, you know you wouldn't stop yourself and you might think well this is just the way that this tool performs and you know i don't like this this hand tool thing and i'm going to go back to my sander so um you know taking that class can really can really help um number 3 my third tip is to establish a periodic budget um you know a lot of times you can buy these tools over time it doesn't need to be an upfront purchase of a whole bunch of tools so for example if uh, going back to my first example of picking the project you know if you can start out this month with say a $150 budget maybe you can go out and get the wood for that project you can get a couple of tools that you need to get started and you're gonna spend that first month starting to process that lumber um, sharpening those tools and you know understanding those tools and getting getting good starting to build skills with those tools by the time you're finished with that you'll probably be at your next month maybe now this month you've got another fifty dollars you know that you can afford to spend or, or something like that so now you can go out and get another tool and you know allow you to move forward with that project you know you've reached a, a step in the project now where you don't have uh, the right size chisel so you can go out and get yourself a new mallet and chisel so that you can start moving forward with your joinery um, and you know that way you're breaking your budget up and you actually may find that you can increase your budget by doing that because you're not going out and spending all this money up front so establish a periodic budget and focus on the the tools you need at the moment and building those skills so tip number four is to buy your wood first. So often in these discussions, you talk about, we'll hear talk about, you know, you need these tools and here's your tool list and go out and get these tools and, uh, you know, you'll be able to build anything. Well, if you're just starting out or, you know, if you, even if you've been woodworking for a while, but you're just trying to do more handwork, you know, at this point in your in your journey you're not trying to build anything you're trying to build one certain something so don't worry about those tool lists get your wood get some wood that you need to to build that project because if you go out and you blow your entire budget on this superficial tool list that contains a bunch of tools that you may not even need for the project you're working on you could end up with no money left over for wood so get your wood first because if you don't have the wood the tools aren't going to do you a whole lot of good tip number five is to buy your sharpening supplies early uh, this is similar to tip number four about the wood you know if you go out and you buy yourself a whole bunch of tools and 
you're starting to learn how to use those tools and maybe you had a little bit money for, a little bit of money left over for wood so you bought a couple boards to get started on your project well what happens when those tools get dull if you haven't budgeted or you haven't bought your sharpening supplies and, and figured those into your initial budget you're going to kind of be stuck and you're going to be using tools that are much duller than they should be and that's going to cause frustration and again that leads to um, you know either giving up the tools or just just really not enjoying what you're doing so buy your sharpening supplies early on to make sure that you have them when your tools get dull because they will get dull and they will probably get dull faster than you think they will when you're starting out and you will need to resharpen them um, and you're going to need to resharpen them frequently so um, buy your sharpening supplies early while you're getting uh, getting set up so tip number six uh, this kind of goes back to tip number one let tasks not tool lists dictate your purchase uh, buy for what you're working on not for what you want to work on so it goes back to picking a project right what I want you to do is think about what it is that you need to do right now Someday you may want to build chairs, and that's fine. But you're not going to go out and buy specialized tools for chair making right now because you want to build a chair eventually. So think of instead about what is it that you're working on right now, and what is it that you need to do the tasks for the project that you're working on right now. If you have the tools that you need to fit, complete those tasks, that's great. Focus on the skills focus on the wood and and working on that project if you don't then focus you know then go ahead and get the tools just the tools that you need to complete that next task or that you know those next two tasks so that you're not blowing your budget on tools that you really don't need so what I want you to notice is that the the first six tips there were really not about the tools right we're at, up to this point we're really talking about things like the wood classes the project and, and really building skills and not focusing so much on on the tools so the last couple tips are going to be a little bit more tool focused but I want you to, to really I really want to point that out because so much of getting started is is often made to be about the tools when it really shouldn't be it should really be about the projects it should really be about the skills um, so keep that in mind when you're when you're starting out down your hand tool path so tip number seven is that all hardware store tools are not bad um, there's there's a common misconception that you know you've got to buy everything from a specialty woodworking shop you've got to buy you know old tools whether it's eBay or flea markets or antique shops or whatever and to avoid the big box stores and I'm going to tell you that, you know, in most cases, maybe that's, you know, that's good advice. And and you won't go wrong by buy, buying all your, your tools from a specialty woodworking store. But there are some tools that you can get away with buying from a hardware store. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, saws. So a lot of times you will find these, these long um, Japanese tooth style crosscut saws uh, hanging up on the shelves of your your local hardware store 
And these saws really are not that bad. Um, they come sharp. The teeth are induction hardened, so you won't be able to resharpen them when they do get dull. But because they're hardened, they're going to stay sharp for quite a long time. And believe it or not, they actually cut fairly well. At least they cross-cut fairly well. Uh, they're not the greatest saws for ripping, but they do cross-cut fairly well. The other saws that actually aren't terrible, they're, they're, not, they're not great, but they can be made to at least function properly, are the saws that are uh, sometimes sold with the miter boxes or the back saws, basically. Um, they, most hardware stores will sell a 14-inch back saw, and other than the aesthetics and you know the uncomfortable handle, they're really not bad saws. They can be made to cut just as well as a very high dollar saw. They are going to require a little bit of sharpening on your part when you get them because typically they really don't come properly sharpened. But um, the steel is fine. Um, the backs usually leave a little bit to be desired. But again, if you're just starting out, you know you can pick up a ten dollar saw and a, a four dollar file and uh, touch up those teeth and it really you know will perform pretty decently so um, you know that's that's another tool that you could get away with um, buying at the hardware store you know if you if you're really uh, strapped for budget um, bevel squares you know you can get those at the hardware store they don't lock down perfectly but they are functional um, you know you'll probably want a better one at some point in the future but if you need one right away they can be they can be made to work um so that that's not a bad tool to to get at the hardware store either utility knives these actually can be used as marking knives if you don't want to spring for a uh, a specialty woodworking marking knife you know that might cost you 20 or 30 dollars uh, or more you can uh, you can make do with a utility knife. You know the blades are replaceable, so you don't have to worry about sharpening them. You just pull the old knife, old blade out, and and put a, a new blade in. So they can be uh, made to make some pretty decent uh, marking knives. Just a, a regular old utility knife. So tip number eight is to save money on common old tools. Um, there are some tools that. Um, are not you know are, are available at the hardware store but that you really should avoid um, chisels are one of these you know I haven't found hardware store chisels that were to my liking um, usually the steel is kind of crummy the bevels are sort of thick and they just usually are, are not not all that well suited for fine woodworking they're fine if you're you know bashing two by fours and cutting through nails um, but you know for for doing precise woodworking and fine woodworking um, they just to me they they don't work all that well so I would if you know if you're if you're limited on budget I would look at old chisels um, you know make sure they have a wooden handle because typically the ones that have the wooden handles are usually going to have better steel because most um, commercial chisels have not been available with with wooden handles um, in quite some time so if you're buying a chisel with an old wooden handle usually means it's probably a pretty old chisel and it probably has some pretty decent steel. Um, and chisels are very common in antique shops and, and flea markets. So, um, you know, you can get them for a dollar or two a piece. Uh, hand planes are another one. You know, your regular old bench planes, your your number four smoother planes, 
your jack planes, your block planes. These are very common in flea markets and antique shops. Um, they can be had relatively inexpensively, um, and you know they're for the most part just as good as the new ones. They're better than the new ones that you're going to find in your typical hardware store, and most can be made to perform just as well as some of the newer high dollar ones. So, um, you know, you can save some money by buying some old tools there. And those tools, old planes are not too difficult to restore and tune up. So, um, it, they would be a good place to spend money on old tools. Tip number nine is to spend your money on rare or high precision tools. So while you're saving some money on some of the more common old tools, when you get into situations where you need some specialty tools, whether it's a rabbit plane or a plow plane or, uh, you know, your really precision tools like your combination squares and things like that, that's where you want to go ahead and spend your money. So in terms of, of the rare tools, you're, what you're probably going to find is that the new high, you know, the new premium versions in a lot of cases may actually be less expensive than the antique ones. And that's because a lot of the antique ones um, may be rare. So in uh, in those cases, it may be worthwhile for you to go ahead and, and spend the money on a new version uh, because it will actually save you money and you may end up with a better tool. Um, high precision tools, you know, I, I come back to the combination square um, you know, it's good to, you can, you can make a square. Um, I have old podcasts on YouTube that will show you how to make a very, a very accurate, very precise square, but it's still good to have at least one good quality square in your kit that you can rely on all the time. Um, a lot of folks swear by Starrett combination squares. They're not the only brand out there. There are other, um, very good combination squares. There are also other options besides combination squares that you can go with, but don't be afraid to spend money on those tools because they are going to be, you know, the tools that you rely on for your precision. So you really want to make sure you have at least one really good quality square in your kit. And that's one place where I would say, go ahead and spend the money on that higher quality, more precise tool. You, you won't be sorry about that. And finally, tip number 10 is to focus on skills, not tools. And and that's pretty much been the theme, I think, uh, of this whole discussion so far, right? By picking a project, taking a class, um, buying your wood first, getting your sharpening supplies, and not really focusing on the tools, but focus on the skills, focus on the project. Um, if you don't have or can't afford a particular tool for a particular task, you know, you got a couple choices. You can wait until you can afford that tool and put the project on hold, or you can problem solve, come up with, you know, some creative solutions for doing that task with the tools that you have. You know, a big part of being a woodworker, especially working by hand is problem solving. It's a lot of what we do on a, on a day-to-day basis in our shops. Um, and it's, it's a lot of what a, most of us enjoy about the craft is that we have this opportunity to be creative and to solve these problems. So, you know, go ahead and, and get creative with the tools that you have to come up with some way to do a task that, 
you know, maybe you didn't have the exact tool that you needed to do it, quote unquote, properly. Um, but, you know, you got creative and, and used what you had on hand. Um, also, consider some common household alternatives to specialized woodworking tools. You know, I talked earlier about the, the utility knife instead of a marking knife. You know, I'm sure there are other common household tools that you might have or or other items laying around that might you might be able to use as alternatives. Um, drafting squares come to mind. So, you know, a lot of... Um, you might have a, a, one of those plastic drafting squares laying around your house from, you know, back in your school days. Or maybe uh, maybe your kids have drafting squares, pl- plastic drafting squares for um, for school. They can actually be fairly accurate and fairly precise, those plastic drafting squares. And, you know, in a pinch, they can be used for layout. Um, you know, so look around your around your house for other common items that maybe you can... Uh, substitute for you know specialized woodworking tools um, you know that I'm sure you can find other other things besides what I've mentioned um, you know again it goes back to the problem solving and being creative you know it's one of the things that we do as as woodworkers so that's going to do it for this week's show I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support none of this would be possible as a reminder if you have feedback questions or topic suggestions You can use the contact form or email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. And again, you can also leave me a voicemail at 276-601-3123. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt002. In the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. You can also sign up for my newsletter to receive subscriber-only content, updates, and special offers delivered to your email inbox every Friday. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. And you'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.